Welcome to the Free Your Energy Podcast. 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 I wanted to create a space where I could chat with thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, authors, and health and wellness experts to discuss how we can free ourselves spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and beyond. I care about mindset, movement, and positive relationships. And I created this podcast for people who also care about these topics and expansion. 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 How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as, you know, the, the professor, the author, the, the app creator, the, the, the TEDx speaker, like all the things that you've done? Like, do you see yourself in the light of, you know, your accomplishments or, you know, just how do you? Let's just start there. I'm just very curious how such a successful person like yourself, like actually views yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like this is a conversation that we don't often have in the mainframe, you know, because let's just be honest, like no matter how great you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how good looking you are, no matter how much you have it together, we all have struggles. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, uh, it's a really generous question. It's a really, um, tender question, you know, um, because it's, it's sort of like this, as and say the story beneath the shtick, but nothing I do is shtick. The things that I do, you know, I think that I keep doing what I do at the pace I do and with the passion I do because it's not a shtick. It's me, you know, it's, it's me, um, it's me expressing me. So I, I see myself first and foremost as somebody who has never, ever been afraid of hard work. I have never, ever, like, if there's something I know to be true about myself, it is that I am not, I'm not afraid of, of hard work and I like to challenge myself. But I think it also means that I, you know, it depends on the day, right? Like there are times that I feel like, my my Lord, this is all so cohesive. I can totally see how A leads to B and how this fuels this. And on my worst days, I'm like, I'm a hot freaking mess. None of this makes sense. I don't understand where I'm going. And I don't know what it's all about, what it's all for, you know? So, and when I go to that place, I'm... I can, I'm at risk of sort of turning against myself, turning against my work. And that's when I, that's when I reach out and text you, you know, you and I have been in a text dialogue all week, like, what the fuck? Like, what is all of it? You know? And, um, and I know my worst place is to go quiet when I start to feel like that. Right. Because then the stuff in my head gets more loud and I know my best place is to reach out. And so with you, I reach out around this whole thing that we do of this content creation, entrepreneurial, being of service, you know, needing to needing to also like earn money, like all of that complexity. I will reach someone like you, other folks in our mind, Avenger group. But when I have a day where I'm like feeling like a hot mess as a wife or feeling like a hot mess as a mother, you know, I will turn to other really sacred, you know, witnessing eyes that I have, like, you know, because I, I, if I've learned anything, I've learned that I've got to fall, it's okay to fall apart. And when I fall apart and when I feel like I can't, none of it makes sense, 
I reach for somebody who who um, can hold it with me or who can sit in it with me and not give me some cop-out platitude answer. Um, so that's a lot of it. I'm, yeah, that's, that's where I go, first of all, with that. I'm curious what you, what you hear in that, what you make <laughs> of that. Well, I hear that you've reached a point and maybe you were born this or maybe you were raised this way. Um, maybe you weren't, you could, you could elaborate and let me know, but you've, you've reached a point where you recognize that community is essential to your individual human experience. Um, and more specifically, you bring community in when maybe you're not optimizing or maybe mm -hmm. when you are confused or, or rugged or down. Whereas like, I feel like the mainframe is share your wins, share the success, share the, share the big things. Mm -hmm. But you know, healing is wholeness. And so if we're going to be whole people, if we're going to heal, we have to, you know, bring people in when it's on those dark days, on the dog days, when it's raining, when, you know, the hair is not moving how we need it, or when the pen is not writing as we, as we want. It's like, bringing in those I, I like how you called it the witnessing eyes mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like that's that's an important thing i know for a fact that when i was younger i didn't do that that was something that i had to okay. learn i had to learn how to like bring people in because of the shame you know because of the stigma of success you have to be good at this you have to, you know i grew up with perfectionist parents you know my dad was in the army my mother was a perfectionist so if i wasn't returning something that was like top tier in my opinion it wasn't going to be accepted so for for people who who struggle with that like you know whether they have like a perfectionist complex in their own head or or, or parents that are still putting that right. pressure on them like where do where do they begin to you know release that pressure valve like what what are some, some mindful steps that they could take to release release that valve yeah of course there's a part of it that's about recognition I know what I was, where I was gonna you know you were saying like were you born like this were you uh, what I know for sure is that you know and I, I say this a lot like I know for sure that my wounds and my gifts are next door neighbors you know they just live right next door to each other it is a like if we say that my gift is that I'm unafraid of hard work okay that's a gift. Not everybody, you know, not everybody will stare down the barrel of a book and be unafraid. And I, you know, I'm like, let me at it. Like, you know, I get itchy, like, give me a huge project. Let me figure out how the hell I'm going to break it down and make it happen. That's a gift. And, and it allows me to be an effective teacher and therapist, da, da, da. you know, a couple comes in, in the throes of infidelity. I'm not scared. I'm like, this is a freaking mountain. Like, let's go. You know, that's a gift. It sits next to a wound or it is born of a wound, which is growing up in a family where there was a lot of, where I saw the big people just struggling and hurting. And, um, I felt that felt like a mountain that I like couldn't climb. I actually couldn't climb it because I was a little person, but what I could do is go in my room and close my door and turn on my you know, Wham album or later on my Albie Shore album and do homework and and work and read. And 
it, it was quiet in my room. You know, there was four walls. There was whatever was happening outside the door. I couldn't hear it. You know, at least I couldn't hear it the way I could hear it if I was in the kitchen. And I had total control over what was going on. And I developed this thing. I don't know what grade I was in when I developed it, but I developed a thing called preventative homework, which is like where you get all of your homework done. And then you just start doing some stuff that the teacher might bring up the next day. So, you know, if I was doing therapy with whatever, an eight or nine-year-old who's telling me about their preventative homework, I would want to inquire a little more about what was going on in the family system. You know, I would be wanting to look at sort of like early signs of perfectionism and need for control, you know? So that's, that's just, but that's just me. That's just me. And it is mine to learn how to work and manage. It's mine to have the people I love call me, call me in on it. Right. So Todd, you know, as I'm in, I think I'm in a, I'm in a chapter right now of of a bit of struggle. I'm feeling a bit over my head with work. And, you know, Todd, my husband of 24 years is like, Hey, Al, like, can we zoom out? Can we ask some questions about what you're trying to do right now? Cause he sees, you know, that he sees that I'm working really hard and he feels the impact, right. That I have less bandwidth for him that I'm I'm less patient, I'm less responsive to things around the house. So um so I think that I think where we start when we start to notice a pattern of perfectionism is recognition and just a ton of compassion for where your perfectionism was born. You know, for you for you it was a military dad and a striving mom, you know, and of course, you you could have done nothing but try to figure out how to shine in their eyes. There's no little little sly had no move available to him but to try to figure out how to impress and please his mom and dad because because your entire literal actual survival when you were little depended on you know, being seen and cared for and tended to by them. So you had no option besides that. And they didn't, you know, have every confidence that your parents raised you to the degree of their healing and the degree of their awareness at the time they were raising you, you know? And so it's not anybody's fault. It's not my parents. It's certainly not my mom and stepdad's fault that they were going through what they were going through when they were raising me. I was born at a particular time into a particular family system and they didn't do that to me. And it is mine to continue to um, work with, you know, and hold. I think the other thing with the perfectionism is like holding both parts. Like, ah, it's, it's you know, it's it's got these gifts and these benefits and it benefits the world. And it's got these risks and consequences. See, in the way you frame it, you frame it in a holistic perspective. You know, you said my gifts or you said my wounds and my gifts are next door neighbors. You know, and it's like you think about who we bring to the table for dinner and it's the perfect me, the good looking me, the straight <laughs> A me, the I just released a book me, you, you know, the the all the good me's. Right. But we don't bring the shame me. Mm-hmm. We don't bring the grief me. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't bring the me that's overwhelmed and overworked and stressed. You know, we don't make we don't bring him or her to the table. And so I love, you know, your holistic approach where you say my wounds and my gifts our next door neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not everybody. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. and not everybody. Like, I'm not going to say all that. I'm not going to say 
you know, whatever. On a fir- if, if I was somebody who's dating, on, my, on a first date, I wouldn't, you know, say that to the person across the table from me. Right? <laughs> it happens in a, you know, but it's like I was thinking about this the other day. It's been coming up a lot for me because I now have this team of three young women that work for me and with me. And as I step into new realms, you know, as the CEO of AHS Global Media Corporation, you know, which like I still have a hard time saying because in my mind, I'm the academic and I work for other people, but I have kicking and screaming become an entrepreneur, right? So I am the CEO of this small business. And that means I have three women that report to me and they watch me struggle, you know, and they, Mm. I, I cannot just be, you know, they, they all, it's really clear how much they admire me. It's really clear how much they learn from me. It's really clear how much they love the work that we get to do together. And and I have to really be careful to not slip into this idea that I have to make it all, I have to show up shiny and perfect because of their admiration of me, right? And that, and that part of them admiring me means that they that they have they have to know that I fumble because they have to know that they get to fumble and they're going to fumble and that there's not ever a point that they're going to get to where they have it all figured out because then that gets really boring like it's it's you know on my best days I'm like it's so cool that I have these women who are like 24 25 26 that that see me in this way that we get to try new scary things together and I don't have to have it all figured out and that's okay um, on my worst days, I get scared, like, oh my God, they work for a hot mess. These poor women, <laughs> they should go get, you know, a real job, whatever. So, oh, anyways, but that's, yeah, that's, and I think that's like sort of in, when I trust it, I know that I can be a, a competent leader and experience confusion and say, I did that wrong and say, I don't like how I handle that. It doesn't, that doesn't mm. take away my, it doesn't, that doesn't take away my competence. Yeah. It sounds like, um, a total embodiment of the experience. And I know from firsthand experience that, um, there are people who will experience what you named where it's like, man, I'm a hot mess or I'm not competent all the time, or I don't know all the things and that, that, um, what do we call it? Imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. you know, will will stop people, it'll, it'll give people paralysis almost. And it'll keep people from not pursuing, you know, what they want to pursue or not uh, putting themselves out there the way that they want to, whether it's, you know, business or, or, or dating or friendship or um, just even learning something new um, or experiencing something new. So how, how do we begin yeah. to step out of uh, imposter syndrome? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I believe um, is that you have to be okay with being a beginner. You know, I notice that sometimes people, they say, okay, I want to be a starting quarterback in the NFL. And then it's like, they think that just because they proclaimed it, like all the work has been done and all Mm -hmm. the the tribulations has been done. You should just be starting an NFL. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. doesn't actually work that way. Right. for, for the thing that you named, you want to start in the NFL, there's probably like a 12-year journey mm-hmm. that you need to go on before you can even sniff that, Yeah. right? And so I'm big on, I'm big on telling people before you even start the thing that you say you want to do, 
I'm big on two things. One, writing down all the steps that it's going to take. And you may not know them all, but just to write it all down, just to make sure you're committed. Because hmm. you're going to have to do all these things. Oh, you want to write a book? You know mm-hmm. how hard it is. Mm-hmm. You, you want to be a professor? You know how hard this is. You want to be a parent? You know how hard it is. Now, the parent thing, I don't think you could really write down because you don't really know till you get in that. <laughs> you don't you don't really you know. You could write you down, but then four years later, you're going to look at that list and crack yourself <laughs> up. <laughs> yep. So how do we begin? How do we get out of imposter syndrome? Right. Yeah. Well, a healthy dose, I mean, I think you just named it. It's that you, what I heard you say was a healthy dose of healthy dose of realism. Because listen, sometimes you have imposter syndrome because you are trying to act some kind of way that you really aren't trained for. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like, that's the part of, I think oftentimes with imposter syndrome, it's all about like, kind of like, you know, getting more confident and just, you know, knowing that you belong here. But sometimes you have imposter syndrome because you really are, you are stretched way out over your skis trying to talk about some stuff or do some stuff that you have not built a foundation for. So let's, let's get clear on that. And I think that is a risk in this era of technology and social media and everybody can have a platform now. You know, it it, um, reminds me when I was when our kids were growing up, we used to go to this Fourth of July parade, which is, um, you know, and there was like a, a dog and it was called the, the pet and bike parade came first, you know, before like the real parade and the pet and bike parade. There were so many people in the parade, you know, all the kids on their bikes, all the kids walking the dogs. There were so many people in the parade that there was nobody watching the parade. Like <laughs> everybody was in the parade. So I think sometimes mm. I think that is one of the risks of this time where everybody can have a platform, everybody can have a voice, everybody can be building something that I think people, some, I think there's a risk of getting out over your skis and then actually giving yourself imposter syndrome because you haven't, you haven't been a learner. You haven't let yourself be a student. You haven't let yourself really be in the struggle because of the rush to try to get to some place where you don't have to feel that way anymore. You know, um, I think about that a lot with my, with young clinicians coming out of graduate school, you know, from learning how to become a therapist is a, is a lifetime of a thing. And it's really difficult to be a therapist and be a public facing therapist. Right. So I always want to be like, slow down. You got time. Just be in the trenches. Just log your, you know, as Razma Menicum would say, get your reps in, you know, get your reps in, like, just do the hours, do the work, like, you know. Let that let it goes to your part about realism is like make the list of all the things, all the steps between here and there, but make sure some of the steps are just being a worker bee, you know, being part of um just being part of a system and knowing that you are learning and growing and like honing yourself even at that quote unquote low level position. Mm. Right, because everything is yeah, I can never say that word. Sequential. <laughs> you know, there's there's steps. It's like you have to master something or, or or at least put enough effort into learning one particular piece before you can move to the next piece. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like with social media, what I notice is it seems like people are trying to skip life steps and skip, mm-hmm. you know, skip moments to like arrive. And like the journey is beautiful. Yeah. You don't always have to arrive. Like you can be in the journey. 
Mm-hmm. You can embrace the journey. You can embrace the moment. And then when you do arrive, it's so much more sweet because it's like you really did arrive. Mm-hmm. You really, really did the work. I think about mm-hmm. when I was uh, a high school student, I wish this would have been, you know, on video documented. But then at the same time, I kind of don't because it's like it's beautiful that we get to tell stories. You know, that's yeah. one of the most sacred pastimes of human beings is telling each other stories. And I just I'll never forget being a, a high school football player. Uh, and I wasn't great. You know, I wasn't I was definitely not bad. I was above good, but I wasn't great. You know, I was I was I was way better than good, but I wasn't elite, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And in my head at the time, you know, as a 17 year old, I thought I was elite for sure. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, but what really was elite was my work ethic. That's mm-hmm. what was elite. And that yeah. was. That was the number one thing that I learned was leaning into work ethic, leaning into working hard. You know, I was not too hyper focused on the end result. I really genuinely embraced the journey of being an athlete, being a 17 year old. And I feel like that that moment really allowed me to be present. So do you have something in your life that that helps you stay present? You know, I know you're doing all these, you know, you're, you're a professor, you're a wife, you're a mom. How do you stay present with everything you're doing? I, we can go to that, but I want to connect with what you just shared in a different way because it just, it really hit me deeply because I, you know, I have these, I have these people in my world that I admire, you know, who I think they've got it all figured out. They've arrived. And then I will get down on myself about how I'm not that. And I, and I probably will never get to that. And I, and I think sometimes about, uh, it's a, maybe it's a weird analogy. I think sometimes about Beyonce, you know, and like beyond, like there's Beyonce, but it doesn't, we need more singers than just Beyonce, right? Like it's, it's incredible. Like, my God, how lucky are we that we live at a time when we, when we are alive, when Beyonce is alive, like we get to benefit from, be in awe of, admire, connect with, da, da, da the music of Beyonce, but we need more singers than just Beyonce, right? Like there's, there is space for all different kinds of voices and all different, like it's all this big tapestry. And so you were not the top athlete and my gosh, like they, your team needed you. There was a space for you in the landscape of that team. And you brought something that was different than the guy who had the top numbers of the combine, you know, you were needed and you were necessary and you brought something, even though if you compared on a different dimension, you were not elite. Mm -hmm. And that is, that helps me be present is that I, when I have times where I'm like, how does she get to do that? And what, how does he make that look so easy? And why don't I have that many followers? I remember that I don't have to be elite to have value and a place in the tapestry or on the team that I'm part of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, I don't have to make it hierarchical. I don't have to, I can be, I can be present and trust my gifts. I can trust my pace. I can trust my work ethic. Um, Cause like you probably, that is, you know, my elite, right. It may, it's not my whatever use of language, you know, there's other things that aren't elite, but that's, I can pretty well anchor on that. So that's part of what keeps me present is remembering I don't know, maybe it's like a long way of saying like trusting bounty that there's, that we need, we need lots, we need lots of people who are showing up in the world, lots and lots of different ways. 
Yeah. I love it. I love it. I want to shift gears and so uh, put your business hat on for a second. Okay. Um, we have a person who they're a therapist right now and they're a little bit burnt out from they, they work at somebody else's clinic. Yeah. Um, they have back to back clients, um, back to back, you know, uh, the papers you guys got to fill out after you meet with a client, yeah. you know, all the work. Um, and it's just a lot for them. It's a lot. They feel like as a, as a therapist, they're not, they, they like the work, but the workload doesn't seem to make sense for their pay. So what they want to do is they still want to be a therapist, but they want to, they want to start their own practice. They want to, they want to go out on, on trust and, and trust that they can still be a therapist and develop their own practice. So for that person, where do they begin that journey? Where do they start that journey? Mm-hmm. The first thing I would say is that the burnout, the burnout is really real. Um, and somebody who has been in practice for, call it less than 10, well, someone has been in practice less than five years, can't know what I know because I've been in practice for 20 plus years. The burnout right now is incredibly real. Like I have a small caseload. I, I don't have a very large practice. And yesterday I did both a suicide screening and I called the police department. That is highly unusual. Those are once in uh, every few years kinds of experiences for me to have. And I did both, made an, made an inquiry. You know, I had to call the police department to make an inquiry about something in particular. Um, I didn't have to make a report or anything like that, but an inquiry, which is still my my body, even as I say it now to you, my body still feels it because it is not my normative. I don't in- interface with law enforcement very frequently at all. And so in one day to have both those things speaks to the immense mental health crisis that we are living in right now. It is immense. It is huge. And depending on what communities you serve, you are feeling it. And I serve a very privileged community and my folks are struggling. And so anybody who's doing much more like community mental health, serving people who occupy one or more marginalized identities, those therapists are feeling it tenfold. And so the that's the first thing I want to just validate. And so and there's a level at which you could work for a practice or you could ru- you could run your own practice and you are not going to get away from just how incredibly hard it is to be a therapist right now. It is like make your eyes cry hard right now for people. And and therapists are emotional first responders. We are on the front lines every day. And so, and it's not, it's not right and it's not fair and therapists should be paid far better than they are, than we are. Um, and it should be, you know, it, it honestly should be like government subsidized, right? Because it's not fair that people pay money, people at their jobs pay money for their health insurance, at least in the U.S. People in, you know, people in the U.S. work jobs in part to have health insurance in order to pay for therapy, in, in order to pay in part for therapy. And then it can be very hard to find a therapist and a therapist is a wait list. And this therapist, you know, has availability, but she doesn't take your insurance. Da, 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 da. Mm. So it's really hard for clients also. Um, and so there's a way in which like in that, 
embedded in that question, I do think there is there can be a liberation in starting to work for yourself, but you can't liberate yourself from the fact that we're in a in a broken system. So I think oftentimes for a therapist to care for themselves, it it it, it may mean more like diversifying their revenue stream, like doing doing some teaching or doing a, a, a class of some kind so that there's there are different ways to earn money that are less emotionally heavy. Mm. Um, even if it's sometimes I think a therapist would be like, you know, let me take these three hours and I will earn less per hour than I would earn if I saw three clients, but it will, it will nourish my soul. It will fill my bucket up a bit so that then I can, um, go back to a clinical work a little bit more refreshed. And I think it's essential right now for anybody who's a practicing therapist to have peer supervision, like, like just a peer, just a group of, of other clinicians where you just come together and just go like, how are you doing? How are you doing? Can I talk to you about this case? Yeah. Let me talk to you about, you know, your case. So that peer consultation, which is hard because it's additive and it's not paid time. Right. But it is, really important. It's a, it's an antidote to burnout because then you've got, you've got other therapists who are witnessing eyes, which is my, my friend Kim calls them witnessing eyes. So that's a, that's a Kim Holstein expression. Um, but therapists need witnessing, therapists need witnessing eyes right now because the work is hard. I mean, you, you know, in your coaching work that people are, you know, so you, you are interfacing and you are, you've got your finger on the pulse of this collective pain and angst as well. You know it and, um, and therapists know it. So. Wow. Thank you. Um, I, I, you could probably tell, I asked that question for someone that I know, um, that I'm working with and okay, yeah, her, her angle is she loves the work. Uh, she just doesn't love the workload for me. I have so many friends who are therapists. So I, you know, I, I hear and just listen to everything. I'm all, I'm always a fly on the wall. I'm always just listening and observing. And I love how you described it as a broken system because every fix that I've heard people come up with goes back to the, this like idea that your fix will work. It'll probably help, but the system around you is broke. You know, it's like, if I want to go to therapy, I have to jump through loops Yes. You know, I need to I need to have this insurance. I need to make this much money. I need, and it's like. Sometimes you don't sometimes some people can't wait, you know, two weeks to talk to someone like sometimes we need help like right now. Like, you know, when uh, we call a crisis, when you're in a crisis, like I need help right now. And that's why I found for me for me in my adult life, I found to be in a men's group mm. to be essential for my mental yeah. health. You know, because my coach, my therapist is not always available, Mm-mm. but my men's group, I have nine men in there. Earlier this year, I was having a moment where I just, I felt like I was entering a crisis. Like I was just, I was stressed out. I was, I was getting pissed off. It, everything I was feeling was just not what I typically feel. I texted chat right away. I said, uh, men, I'm not okay. That's all I said. <laughs> Within 10 minutes, three guys called me. Oh. Two, guys, two guys called me, one guy FaceTimed me. Oh. You know, and they're like, what's, what's, what's going on? Talk to me. Hello, my friend. I would like to invite you to support the podcast. 
go to sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. And you could subscribe to the podcast. It's $8.88. This money will go towards the web service that I use, my engineer, everything that we need to edit, and everything that we need to bring you the best show possible. If you're a supporter of what we're doing and you love the work here, you can support for $8.88 at sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. So I know you met, you kind of mentioned that um, with peer supervision. Do yeah. You have, um, you know, like a woman's group that you're in or a professor's group. Like talk to me about some of the groups that you're in to support you. I'm glad that you're bringing that up, Sly, because that is, I think that that's part, you know, 20 plus years ago when I entered the field of mental health, there was so much stigma around therapy that nobody, nobody talked about going to therapy. If you went to therapy, nobody knew. If I was your therapist and I saw you at the grocery store, you know, I would make sure I wouldn't make eye contact with you. Now it was like, <laughs> hey, you're my therapist. You know, like now it is just like, it's a badge mm-hmm. of honor. It's a source of pride. Everyone's like, my therapist said, well, my therapist said, I love it. But what it means is we, is it has become it's almost, it's not like the pendulum has swung too far the other way. It just means that now we have a problem of availability. Like we can't turn out a therapist fast enough to serve all the people who are like done being, you know, ashamed of therapy and are like ready to dive on in. So I love that you brought up community care because that's how you, you know, 10 X support, right. Is like you, yes, Sly's therapist isn't available, but his men's group is available. Um, so I think that is, you know, community for communities to come together and offer support to each other is is really important. So that's a kind of a message for the general public, not so much for the therapists who are listening, but for the general public to remember that if it's hard to get a therapist, that's one thing. But there are organizations. The one that one that I love is called Woman Within International. That's a women's organization. There is, you know, Connor Beaton's Man Talks for Men. My friend Todd Adams has a community called Men Living. Um, so there are there are organizations that will help you find a group in your community. And so I have so I went um, close to ten years ago to a Woman Within weekend, and then um, joined. Like we started, eight of us, eight of us gals started a women's group, um, and we're still together. And, um, that's Kim with the witnessing eyes. (laughs) That's, you know, that's my women's group. And so, yeah, I can go there and just be like, you know, we, there's a particular, because it's a woman within designed group, we have a particular protocol. We have a way that we do our gatherings, like a a procedure for check-in, a procedure for clearing dynamics between group members, a declaration of if you want to work today, how urgent your work is a particular way in which you respond when a woman is doing her work. There's no advice giving. There's no direction. It is reflect, it is, it's mirroring. It's reflecting, holding up a mirror. It's saying, you know, hey, Allie, the story you're telling now about your dynamic with your daughter reminds us of something you talked about last year about a dynamic with your mother, you know, because now the collective holds your stories. We hold each other's stories so we can, we do that for each other. So that's, pretty effing sacred. And it's a, it's a commitment. It is a commitment of time and of energy. And I don't, you know, I missed the last couple of meetings. And so I have that kind of like sitting on my shoulder, but I'm not showing up for my girls, you know? Um, and I named that in the group chat. I named 
I feel like dog shit. I've, I've not been there, you know, and they were like, okay, we love, you know, we see you're struggling. We hear you're struggling. We hear you feel bad, you know, come back. <laughs> so, that, and that's important, right. right? Because if I don't, if I don't say that, I know exactly what I'll do, which is I'll just, I'll just do a slow fade. I'll just fade mm. away. So I knew I've got to name it. I have to name that I'm feeling guilty. Da, da, da. I've got stories in my head about how I'm letting my group down. You know, I knew I had to name it so I could turn it around. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing of um, ownership and accountability is nine times out of 10, <laughs> it's going to make the situation lighter. <laughs> you know, when you're just like, yeah, I'm not doing this. That's I'm not right. doing that. I messed that up. I'm pro- I'm about to fuck this up. That's like, right. <laughs> That's like, right. Nine it, out of ten times. You're right. Yeah. And then like, it's like you get out of your head. You get out of your <sighs> shame spiral. You get out of your story. You get this, The you know, I play football, so I have to say it. You get the shoulder pads off your shoulders. You're just free. You're like, like, yeah. yeah. I'm not here. I'm I'm late all the time. Whatever it is, yeah. like just owning it, like you know. You, uh, I'm taking notes. Um, I was reading this study, and it was saying that uh, if you take notes, you're more likely to remember the things that you're learning in, uh-huh. in conversation. Sure. So you know, when I talk to someone of your elite level, I gotta take okay. some notes. <laughs> okay. So you said zoom out. You were talking about your husband, Todd. Um, and he was talking, he was talking to you, uh, recognizing your, your overwhelm and your, you know, wanting to make some changes, but you use the word specifically zoom out. And I feel like that's a beautiful word that we could take with us. Um, so Mm. maybe you could speak to that, you know, maybe from his angle, you know, like when he approached you and said, Hey, let's zoom out. Maybe you could, maybe you could, and I know you've done it for him and done it for others. So maybe you could tell me from the lens of someone who is trying to tell their partner or their child, like, Uh, okay, like, let's zoom out. Like, how do we, how do we approach that? Because it's often a fragile space. You know, if a person is stressed, they're overwhelmed, they're overworked, they had a bad day at work, you know, and they, you know, they might be yelling at the kid because they had a bad day at work and you're witnessing this and you're like, well, damn, okay. It's like, I want to acknowledge that they had a bad day at work, but they don't need to be yelling at the kid or, you know, making That's their right. life harder. That's so right. how do we, how do we initiate the zoom out for oh people my we God. care about? That is Sly, it's such a beautiful, it's such a great place to take us because it's so incredibly real. So, okay. So if I'm channeling Todd Solomon, what he knew is that if he came to me and said, you're distracted you're complaining a lot and you're not paying enough attention to me. He knows damn well if he had come to me with those three criticisms, I would have done the thing that I'm at risk of doing, which is kind of like a little, uh, like drop a bomb and run. I would have been like, well, you're not so hot yourself or, well, at least I'm not blah, blah, blah. And then I would have retreated into a shame spiral. A hundred percent. I would have been snippy and then he would have lost me. And his voice would have started to sound to me like Charlie Brown's teacher, like wah, 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 wah. You know, because when you go into shame, I don't know if it happened for you. When I go into shame, like it is like, ooh, like I'm in, you know, I'm in my own realm and, I, and I'm not even present to whatever the hell he's saying. So he knows in loving me, he knows that if he leads with, a critical description. You're so, you're not enough, 
you've been, this always happens, you know, anything like that. He knows he's going to lose me. So he came to me with empathy. Mm. I see how hard you're working. Do you, you know, when you're available, he does, you know, this is what, what we call going meta. Like when you're available, I'd love to talk to you a bit about like just things feel kind of like off kilter. Whenever you're available, I'd love to talk about what's going on and if there's any tweaks that might be possible for you because I see how hard you're working. It was a really gentle invitation. That, listen, I, you know, it's a lot to ask, right? If, if it had been that I was yelling at our daughter, it wouldn't have gone that, you know, that way. So it's very hard. It's very hard. Like that's that scenario of like, how do you do a gentle invitation when your spouse is yelling at a kid? That's hard. I'm not saying any of that is easy. I am saying that when we reach for each other's humanity, it's going to go better, right? So the person who's watching their spouse being impatient with their kid may have to solve the moment, may have to kind of like say, hey, why don't you tag out for, you know, I think even there it can be gentle rather than being like, why are you being an asshole to our kid? You can say, hey, I'm a, you know, why don't you tag out? I, you know, you haven't even taken a shower yet after your long day. How about, how about I tag in and you tag out and go take a shower? You know, I think there can be a, a, a gentle redirect. Um, I don't, you know, even, even in that moment where the person is feeling like this is so freaking unfair that you're yelling at our kid because you're stressed. I think it can still, we can still take that beat and say, okay, I'm going to, I am going to intervene. I am going to disrupt this, right? Because your stress level is not an excuse to talk to our kid any old way. So I'm going to disrupt it, but I'm going to disrupt it, you know, in as neutral way possible. I'm not going to lay into my partner and be like, how dare you take your stress out on our kid? Because not just at some level, the person who's stressed and yelling at their kid, at some level, they know they're not. They know they're not bringing their best, their A game. They know they're not in their integrity. They know they're threadbare. And so they don't need to heap, they don't need to heap, you know, I'm ruining this family on top of everything else they're already feeling. Powerful. Wow. <clears throat> So criticism and empathy is one of the what I'm taking from that is like the main the main entry point to make sure that we're aware of, you know, am yeah. I about to yeah. criticize this person. Yeah. Which is, I think, uh, in Gottman's work, he notes that as one of the what is it, the four horsemen of. That's the, right. The, yeah, apocalypse, the, the, yeah. the apocalypse. Right. Yeah. And it's like yeah. if you're doing these four things, the relationship is going to be on that spiral where it could it could end in a catastrophe and criticism is one of them so turn into empathy see it's it's so interesting when you turn to empathy i feel like when you when you choose criticism you're going to choose to be you know in your ego in your one player story you know you're going to create this like well why are you doing this to me or like why am i you know but it's like when you choose empathy you're zooming you are zooming out and you're seeing a whole story yeah and you're like, well, damn, they probably had a, a tough day or maybe they got a phone call that threw them off. Let me let me just, you know, let them know I'm here for them. And, you know, and then it's like you're not making it about you. That's right. That's right. Even though you could, I mean, Todd could make it about him right now. You know, after all I've done for her, after all, after everything, you know, I'm so much more patient with her than she is with me. I'm so much da 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 
you know, there, it, it really is. And, and I think there are, there are parts of him. There are those stories are there, of course, because we're not ever going to get rid of our ego, but I think we can honor, I, I want, you know, I want him to be compassionate and real with the feelings that he has while reaching for me with empathy, because then, because then it leads me to say things like, I want to, I want to invest more energy into our relationship. I don't like how far apart we are. I miss you. I want to go for a walk with you. I want to have a date with you. I want to have sex with you, you know, all, whatever it is. Like, so it will, his, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's relational, even, even though the wounded ego, the bruised ego, the feeling of being ignored or not prioritized, that is real. And it's not the full story. It's the one, as you said, it's the one player, one player game. Let's talk about dating for teenagers and people in their early 20s. Obviously, I'm not a teenager <laughs> or in my early 20s. <laughs> so, uh, I did that phase of life. It was mm-hmm. a, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful phase. <laughs> um, but when I did it, there was no social media. There was no there was no dating sites. Maybe there was, but we weren't on them. Um, so I got to experience, you know, writing a girl a letter, you know, walking up to her <laughs> and asking her out in front of her friends, um, you know, being rejected in public, um, the nervousness you feel when you see a pretty girl and you're like, okay, you know, you play the whole situation in your head. You're like, okay, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to say my name. I'm going to ask her her name. Do I shake her hand? Do I go for a hug? Do I stand next? You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, you got to figure it out. You don't really know, you know, you're figuring it all out. Right. Um, and I've always said that I think that that anxiety, that nervousness, I think that that's all a beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, human experience. You know, you, you got butterflies, mm-hmm. your palms are sweaty, literally because you're just going to go ask a girl to go to homecoming with you or go get some ice cream with you. And you have sweaty palms, I think is a natural, normal, beautiful thing. Um, and I want to make sure that I want to preface this to make sure that I am not putting down how people are doing things nowadays whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. I'm just noting that I had a different experience. And that's also not to say that people still don't have that, but we know that there's a lot more media. There's a lot more social media. There's a lot more uh, Snapchat apps. And we know that the apps are being used to forge these relationships. So I'm curious from the hat that you wear as someone who grew up like me, where you, you know, mm-hmm. you had to get on phone calls, you got asked to go on a date. Uh, Todd probably picked you up for a date, you know, <laughs> um, now people just Uber and meet there. That's right. So with all the changes that have happened, um, relationships are still the same. People mm-hmm. have desire. People want to be seen. People want to spend a good time together. So I'm, I'm wondering what advantages do you see that this generation has? And then I'm also wondering, like, what disadvantages do they have mm. if our goal is to yeah. create a healthy relationship? Yeah, yeah Even yeah. if it's not like a, hey, we're going to be together for 20 years like your husband. Even if it's just like we're meeting each other and it's a, it's a healthy thing. And yeah. maybe we don't become that, but at least we can come together in a healthy way. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, I, I love in the framing that we're that you're inviting us to explore the the um, disadvantages and the advantages, because I think very often when older people talk about younger people, it's like, you guys don't know how, you know, about the good old days, whatever. Like, I think we can get, I think that when there's intergenerational 
curiosity, there needs to be like, um, just when there's intergenerational, like exploration of how dating was then how dating is now, we have to make space for the advantages and disadvantages, like all of it. Right. Cause, and, and to, and to have the comparison of then versus now be in the service of curiosity, support, rather than trying to come to some sort of an answer. Um, but, but what I know to be true is that I, I know, I mean, I know because I, I teach college students and I know that there's a line outside of my door when I have office hours, you know, <laughs> he, younger people want, you know, want the sort of wisdom of elders, you know, or the connect, the ability to connect with elders as holding more experience. But the thing that will shut down the possibility of that kind of conversation is when the elder you know, comes at it with like, you don't know, you guys are all messed up with all this, mm. all this swiping and all of this flim flam, <laughs> you know, if the elders <laughs> come in with something like that, it's going to shut it down, of course, because who, who wants that? But um, yeah, I mean, my, you know, I, I think it's so, I think it's so cool, the possibilities that open up with technology, I think, especially for folks who occupy one or more marginalized identities. I think it's so good for LGBTQIA plus folks to be able to find each other. I think it's so cool people who have who have interest in diverse ways of coming together, whether it's poly or open. Um, you know, some version of sort of um, expanding the traditional, you know, monogamy model to be able to kind of seek partnership in that way and be able to start from a foundation of we're going to be expansive and exploratory rather than having to figure that out, you know, along the way or confess it at some point that I don't want Mm. monogamy. So there's such, when, when we use technology as a tool, you know, then it can, it can take people to places that people our age can't even imagine, you know? Um, when we use technology to try to circumvent the anxiety, that's when we get into trouble. Because I think what you said is so spot on that relationships themselves have not changed. And it's, and you are going to have to learn how to tolerate the anxiety of uncertainty, how to work with your butterflies, how to say the hard, scary thing. You're gonna, there's no way of bypassing that. With technology, you maybe have the illusion you can bypass it. Or with technology, you maybe can like delay it, but at some point you got to get in the ring and and just be with the messy and the uncertain. So I do think that's the disadvantage is that it just, I think that it's easier probably to have the illusion that I can do this really simply and I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to be scared or nervous or confused or have the palms, the sweaty palms. (laughs) Okay. Last question. This question is only for me. Okay. <laughs> because you live in Chicago, where I grew yeah. up. And so I'm curious, what is your favorite part of living in Chicago? Oh, well, that's easy. My favorite part is my my lover, Lake Michigan. I freaking love Lake Michigan so much. I get into that lake when I'm happy. I get into that lake when I'm scared. I get in, I sit next to her when I'm, you know, whatever. I just, I love being, I'm walking distance to Lake Michigan. I cannot imagine, I really cannot imagine ever living somewhere where I'm not walking distance to a body of water because it is just my, 
is just my my source. I love her in all seasons <laughs> and for all reasons. Uh, that's the best part for sure. The pizza's pretty damn good. What's your top your top two pizza places? We have one right here in Highland Park called Piero's that makes a deep dish spinach pizza that I don't I hardly ever eat it because it's a little un, you know it's a little challenging. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little, yeah, 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 you know. I know. <laughs> but when I do, oh my god, it's so good. And then there's one uh, downtown called Bacino's on um, on the river, and there's one in Lincoln Park. Bacino's is really good. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> What's your favorite? You know Chicago. Uh. I'm simple. You you know, Giordano is for me. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 the one for me. Yeah. Um, I was on YouTube the other day and I know we gotta go, um, but I'm gonna tell you this and then then we can part ways for the day. It's been beautiful talking with you. Um I was on YouTube the other day and I was just really like missing Chicago. And I I, I do miss it. I wanna get back and um, I want to get my son out there so he can see, you know, downtown so he can see where I play football and like drive him around and, Ugh. you know, just kind of show him where I'm from and what, you know, the streets I walked, you know, and, um, you know, I spent so much time there. I know the place like the back of my hand. I know the freeways, the streets, obviously some, some things have probably changed, but, um, I was just having this really, uh, this like big hole in me, you know, I'm just missing being back there, you know, seeing my brother, my sister, seeing my cousins who and my uncles, aunties who are still alive. And uh, so I go on YouTube, you know, because YouTube can bring you right back home. And I just type like food Chicago. And this video <laughs> comes up of this guy making uh, an Italian beef sandwich, which is one of my favorite things. I haven't, uh-huh. I haven't had an Italian beef in like probably six years. Right. Last I think the last time I was in Chicago for a long time. And <laughs> I'm watching this dude make an Italian beef on YouTube and I start crying. You know, I got a little like a little tear came down. <laughs> and I was like, damn, am I that hungry or do I just miss Chicago? You know, uh-huh. like what's going on here? <laughs> oh so God. yeah, it was a um... it was a big moment to just to recognize like, man, I gotta get back to it get back to yeah. the city, see some people and take my boy. I got to, I got to take my boy because I need him to see, you know, That's where right. dad his is roots. from. Yeah, you know? his, roots. Mm-hmm. his homeland. I, I would such a, it's such a sweet reminder of like how much food, food is so much more than just food, right? It holds like, it holds all those memories and all those associations. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's sweet. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the free your energy podcast. Reviews are everything. Please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope this helped you. I hope it served you. And I hope you continue to free your energy.